All right, this is our class on the book of Colossians, lesson number three in the series. And today, Lord willing, we're going to cover chapter one, verses three to 12. That's, a, that's the lesson plan for today. Just a bit of review for those of you who might just be new to this class. Colossians is a letter, an epistle written by Paul the Apostle around 61 to 63 AD while he was in prison in Rome. In the letter Paul argues for the preeminence of Christ in response to some false teaching that was going on in this particular congregation. So last time we are last in our last class we covered Paul's introductory remarks where he introduces himself. He establishes his own authority as an apostle and a teacher in the face of the false teachers and the false teaching that have been active at their congregation and elsewhere in the region at the time. So he blesses them with grace and peace from God, two very important spiritual gifts that they are in danger of losing if the heretics have their way. You know, he starts his letter, grace and peace to you. And last time I explained to you, you know, the meaning of that grace and peace. Grace are the gifts. Peace are, is the, is the, uh, is the, uh, the uh, emotion, is the sense of spirituality that we, uh, that we experience when we receive God's grace. His point is, I, I'm offering to you as a blessing grace and peace, but if you continue in the wrong way that you're going, the wrong teaching that you're receiving, you're going to lose that grace and peace. That's the understanding that he begins with. So in the following section of this letter, Paul is going to offer a prayer which will serve as a bridge to the first major point in his lesson. And that is that Jesus Christ is preeminent or he is first or he is foremost in a relationship with God. So in the first section, Paul is going to review the establishment and the progress of the Colossian church. And the interesting thing is he does this but he does it in the form of a prayer. He could have said, you know, back in 58, uh, you know, the year 58, when so-and-so went to you, to you people and preached, and then in the fall this happened, and then the following year, you know, he could be doing that, you know, describing their history kind of in a historical way. But instead of doing that, he offers a prayer. And within the prayer, he talks about their history and their founding and so on and so forth. So the history of the Colossian church, verses 3 to 8, is just one very long sentence with a lot of sub-clauses. That's why sometimes it's difficult to kind of unwrap the things that Paul is teaching because there's so many ideas packed into such a little amount of space. So let's begin with verse, let's begin with verse 3. He says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. So right here he establishes the fact that he and his associates constantly pray for this church. As a matter of fact, prayer is one of the main functions of church leaders. If you remember, if you've studied the book of Acts in chapter 6 verse 4, the apostles in that particular episode said that they did not want to take up their time with benevolence work. This they gave over to the deacons because Um, they wanted to focus on their main tasks as leaders in the church and their main tasks were prayer and ministry of the word. Not that benevolence work, taking care of the widows and so on and so forth, not that that was not important, 
But that wasn't their primary work. They gave this work to the deacons. They maintained their work of ministry of the word, meaning teaching the word and, and so on and so forth, and the ministry of prayer. Also, Paul quickly establishes the position of Jesus Christ as equal to the Father. He prays to God, the Father of Christ, there of the same divine nature. He prays to one, but both are included. You know, sometimes you ever do that when you're praying? You're saying, dear Father, or should I say dear Father, or should I say dear Jesus? Or should I say, oh, uh, dear Holy Spirit, you know, which one? And so Paul is, you know, helps us out here. When you're praying to Jesus, you're praying to the Father. When you're praying to the Father, you're also praying to Jesus and the, the Spirit as well. So in his, prayer, one, uh, in his prayer is one of thanksgiving, which was not always the case when he was praying for a particular congregation. If you read the, uh, the epistle to the Corinthians, he doesn't thank God for them. <laughs> they were a troublesome church. You know, there was division and fighting and sexual immorality and all kinds. They were going at each other with lawsuits and whatever. You know, he didn't say, every day I give thanks for you. you know, he, he didn't say that about the Corinthians. But he, he, he says this about these individuals. So this congregation has been making good progress. They've not yet fallen, but they're in danger of falling because of the false doctrine that's being you know, promoted uh, among them. Uh, let's look at verse four and five. It says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So the reasons for his prayers of thanksgiving are found in these verses. Uh, first of all, why does he give thanks? First of all, for their faith. These Christians have faith in Jesus Christ and Paul is thankful for that. They believe in the Lord. They have not yet been moved away from this. They're in danger of, of doing this, but not yet. So Paul is thankful for brethren of like-minded faith. Also their love. He's enthusiastic about their faith because it is sincerely and authentically demonstrated how? Well, in love. And not just any type of love, but true Christian love of the brethren, love of the church. You, know, <clears throat> you can't be for God and against the church. I hear people say that sometimes. You know, I believe in God. Me and God, we're buddies. I just don't have anything to do with the church. You know, I, don't, you know, I, I, I have no use for the church. Really, I say to them. Well, that's not God's attitude because he sent his son to die in order to establish the church. So as far as God is concerned, the church is extremely important. As a matter of fact, it is the most important thing. So you can't say uh, I'm for God, but I'm against the church. If you love God, then you love, you love the thing that God has created through the death of his son, which is the church. As a matter of fact, in another epistle in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul says, so then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, right? We give blood, we donate to the cancer society. You know, let's do good to all people. And then he says the following, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Love everybody. Do good when you have an opportunity, irregardless of if people have faith or not. You know, if you're going to help somebody, you just help them because of the love of God. Right? You're not asking them 20 questions. But he says, but especially, especially let your love be demonstrated to the household of faith, to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Another thing he's happy about is their hope. 
He's happy for them and thankful and prayerful because of their future. In the past they believed in Jesus. In the present they expressed that faith in love for others, especially Christians. And in the future there's this hope. And you know, in the Bible the word hope, you know, it doesn't mean uh, yeah, maybe something is going to happen. Well, I hope so. You know, are, you going, are you going to the big game? Well, I don't know. I don't have a ticket yet, but I hope so. You know, that's wishful thinking. You know. In the Bible, the word hope means confident assurance. It's something you don't have yet, but you are absolutely confident that you will have. So he's happy because in their future they have this hope, which is their reward in heaven. Now, Paul here equates the reward, eternal life with God, with the word hope, confident assurance of the reward. This is a kind of, a, not a kind of, it is a literary device known as metonymy. Metonymy, where one word is substituted for another word. Let me give you an example of metonymy. Um, we say that the president is the head of state. Right? Everybody, he's the head of state. The president is the head of state. But he's not actually a head, is he? And the state doesn't have a head, does it? I mean, the word head is substituted for the word leader. The president is the leader of the state. Metonymy. You take the word leader out, you put the word head in, and you get the same thing. You get a visual image there. So, Paul gives thanks because they have a sure reward awaiting them in heaven and he refers to this sure reward as their hope. And I've explained to you in the past that Paul you know, many times uses different words to describe the same thing. So here he's using the word hope instead of the word eternal life, eternal reward and so on and so forth. It's hope. So in verses 5b to 8 Paul is going to expand his comment concerning this hope, this reward idea that the Colossians are anticipating. He's going to expand this idea by saying several more things about this and its relationship to the gospel message. In other words, he prays in joy because they have hope. And now he's, now he's going to say, oh, and by the way, concerning this hope, you know, I'm going to tell you something about this hope. This is another literary device that Paul uses where he talks about one thing and then without pausing or beginning a new sentence he builds a bridge to a completely different idea. So in these verses he's going to build a bridge from the idea of the reward that the Colossians will receive to where they receive this reward and who brought this reward to them. And so we begin with where the information about this reward comes from. Where does this come from? This hope, this reward you're going to have that he's happy that you're having. Where did this reward come from? This faith that leads to this love that produces this reward and hope. All of it begins, he says, with the message of the gospel. So right here he says, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. This hope that you have, that I'm happy you have, that I give thanks that you have. Where did you get this hope? He says, well, you heard it from the word of truth, the gospel. So Paul assumes that his readers know what he's talking about when he says gospel or good news. Uh, He assumes that they already know 
that Jesus died to pay the moral debt for all men and now forgiveness and eternal life are offered through faith in Him. Gospel is the compressed form for all of this information. I mean, I could talk for an hour about the gospel and what it does and how we respond, you know, repentance and baptism and, and so on and so forth. But he just takes all these ideas and he shrinks them down into one single word, gospel. And so the word gospel represents everything that God did to save us and everything that we do in response, all shrunk down to the word gospel. And so he refers to the gospel as the word of truth. Now remember, to keep your eye on what these Colossians are struggling with here, you know, keep your eye on the ball, right? The problem is false doctrine is leading them away from the simple message of the gospel. That's the problem. So Paul establishes himself as an apostle with authority to teach. He establishes Christ as God's son. And now the gospel as the truth as opposed to what they have been receiving from the false teachers. All right. So where the information about the reward comes from, that's the first thing he establishes, and then what this information is doing. What is this gospel doing in verse 6? Let's read that. It says, this gospel which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. So this is what the gospel is doing. They're not the only ones to receive this good news that initiates faith and love and hope but everywhere else where the gospel is preached the same pattern of faith Hope, love has been repeated and increased. The same thing happens every time the grace of God is perceived in the gospel message. Faith, love, hope is produced and increased as people cling to the message and to the promise. So Paul assures them that theirs is not a a unique or an isolated experience, but the same pattern that occurs everywhere else where the gospel goes. Wherever the gospel goes and people respond, there is faith, there is love, there is hope. Okay? So where it comes from, what it's doing, and then the third thing, who delivered this message? See, what, see his progress of thought? Where does this come from, this hope? Well, it comes from the gospel. Well, what does the gospel do? Well, it produces this faith and this hope and this love. Well, who delivered this message? All right, verse seven and eight. Just as you learned it from Epaphras. Learned what? The gospel, the truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. So Paul reminds them of how he has come to know of their progress in the faith. And between the lines, Not only has he come to know of their progress in the faith, but he's also come to know the problems that they're having in the faith. He reminds them of the preacher who first brought them the gospel, Epaphras. Epaphras is just the short form for Epaphroditus. Just like Mike is the short form for Michael. Epaphras. Um, And he gives him a commendation as a loving and faithful minister. This gospel that produces this faith and love and hope in you, 
you heard it first from Epaphras. And Epaphras is a good man. Perhaps since Epaphroditus or Epaphras was from this particular congregation, the false teachers were trying to undermine his teaching and his efforts at ministry. So Paul gives Epaphras a kind of a, you know, a confirmation. You know, listen to him. This is a good man. He brought you the message originally. He's, you know how we say that brother is sound in doctrine? He's solid. He knows what he's talking about. That, that's what Paul is doing here for Epaphras. So Paul confirms his standing and his teaching and his faithful report of their condition and attitude. In other words, Paul is assuring the congregation, Epaphras didn't come here and badmouth you. He didn't come here you know, telling tales, putting you down. Absolutely not. His report was that their love was in the spirit and that they had true faith and they had hope, but they were having some problems. So up to now, He's talked about the history of the Colossian church. right? He's talked about their past, who brought them the word, what the word did for them, the, the kind of problems they may be having. Now he switches gears. He's going to talk about the future of this particular congregation. So he continues in this prayer format, but he turns from discussing and thanksgiving for the past to a prayer request of blessings for their future. And in these verses he asks God to bless them with very specific spiritual blessings. The first of which is knowledge of God's will. Knowledge of God's will. Verse 9. He says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So since they are faithful and loving and hopeful, Paul asks God to add to these things a special kind of knowledge. Not any kind of knowledge. A special kind of knowledge. Not a worldly knowledge of politics or finances or philosophy, but rather the knowledge of God's will. Remember, in those days there existed only a few letters written by the apostles. The very few collection of gospel and epistles. And so Paul asks God to give them the knowledge that they need that we today have in the New Testament. We just opened the book and we've got it all. They didn't have that. So uh, they had no access to all of this information in one place. So Paul prays that God will give them spiritual wisdom and understanding to know the things of God and to know the things of Christ that are revealed and disseminated by all the apostles. So Paul prays that God will somehow reveal and supply this wisdom and understanding to these people so that they can fight, so they can resist the false teaching that they are being attacked with. So in the context of this letter, it would probably be the ability to understand and apply what he, Paul, was about to share with them regarding Christ. So he says, I'm praying for you. You're faithful. They're hopeful. You're loving. And you know, you, you started to be this way because Epaphras, a good sound preacher, preached the gospel to you. And, here's, and you're having some problems. And so I'm going to continue praying for your future. And in the future, what I want is I want God to give you the wisdom to understand what I'm about to tell you. OK. All right. B. First thing he wants them to understand is or give them or God to give them is the ability to please 
the Lord. So that you will walk in a man, you know, I'm praying that you'll have the knowledge and understanding so that you will be able to do what? So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now there's a difference between what we see as the right thing, what we want to do and what we end up doing. And the spirit is often willing, but we know that the flesh is weak. So Paul asks God to help them live in a way that will be pleasing to him, pleasing to God, not Paul. And this would include obeying him and having the strength to do his will in every area of life. In other words, dear God, please reduce their sin quota. We all have a sin quota, right? We can never get it down to zero sin. But some people have a higher sin quota than others. right? So Paul is saying, Lord, give them the ability to bring down the sin quota in their life so that they can please you, so that they can live in a way that is more pleasing to you. And also so that they can bear the fruit of good works in the name of Christ. The ability to see and do these things that honor God and witness their faith. Have you never done that? Have you ever, you know, you had a, you're, you're going along, you're just living your life, taking care of your business, right? And then an opportunity to do something really good, really spiritually good comes along and you seize it. You recognize it for what it is and you do it. And you go all the way and you do it well. You know the feeling you have after, man, that was, that was good. I wish I could be that good all the time. I wish I could kind of see what God wants me to do Every time. But a lot of times opportunities go by, oh, you know, whatever. You say, oh man, I could have said this. I could have done that. I didn't, I didn't know. I wasn't paying attention. I was so focused on, you know, I don't know, whatever, you know, finishing my work or <laughs> taking care of one of the to-do list things. And I missed the opportunity right there to share my faith with somebody because I was so busy trying to take care of my business. So Paul is saying, I'm praying so that God will help you recognize those opportunities. And of course, he prays that God will help them increase their knowledge, not just of God's will, what God wants you to do, but also increase your knowledge of God himself, his being, that you get to know him intimately. There's a difference between knowing what God wants you to do and knowing God. And believe me, Knowing God is a much more satisfying experience than just knowing what God wants you to do. Okay? So they don't have the resources to do these things. We do. We got it here. We have elders and teachers and preachers and mature saints. And we have God's word in any language or style that we want it, in any device that we want it. We have it. They didn't have any of these things. They didn't have these resources. And even if they wanted to, Paul asks God to intervene and provide whatever is necessary to obey Him, to grow in Him, and to know Him personally. So he prays for their increased knowledge and also their increased ability to express spiritual power. Spiritual power. Verse 11a, he says, Strengthen with all power, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. So interesting this. So, so interesting. 
He finishes by asking God to increase their power. Again, not mental power or physical power, but their spiritual power. And not the power to do miracles or to speak in tongues or to prophecy or to heal. Not that power. He asks for the power to attain two virtues. The first is patience. Please God, give them the spiritual power so that they can have and cultivate the virtue of patience. Not just the ability to wait around. That's not patience. I'm waiting for a plane. I'm waiting. Man, I wish that plane would get here. Boy, oh boy, I'm telling you. I think I'm going to put in a complaint. You know, I'm going to sue. I think I'm going to complain and try to get I bumped up to first class or business class because I'm waiting for the plane and the plane is late. Is that patience? I'm sick. And boy, I can't wait till I'm better. And I wish God would hurry up and make me better because I got stuff to do. I got, I got my business to take care of and, I, and I'm sick and I got to be around here and all this time I'm wasting and time is going by and I'm feeling bad. You know, is that patience? Well, that's not patience. Patience is the ability to bear under a load of persecution or trial or opposition without anger, without resentment, without self-pity and retaining the ability to have faith and hope and love. That's patience. When you can be as loving when you're ill as you are loving when you are well. That's patience. So he's saying, God, please give them the power to cultivate that virtue. And then the other one, steadfastness. Steadfastness is, the, is a little different than patience. It's the ability to hold out a long time against provocation. An ability to hold out a long time to take decisive action. A person who has the quality of steadfastness is not ruled by his or her temper or passion, but ruled rather by love, by faith, by hope, steadfastness. So they're being tested in this congregation and Paul calls upon God to increase not only their knowledge and not only their spiritual abilities, but also their power to resist quitting or become divisive. Finally, he prays that they have a joyful attitude. A joyful attitude. Verse 11b and 12. He says, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And all along with all of these, Paul prays that they can exercise these spiritual virtues with an attitude of joy and thanksgiving. Because despite the difficulties, they have the privilege of sharing in the, what he calls, the inheritance of the saints in light. Now here's, you know when I said to you, metonymy? Here's, here's what Paul is doing. Before this light, this word light, before he referred to this as hope. <laughs> and before that he referred to it as like eternal life or salvation. It's always the same thing. He just changes the word that he uses to describe it. Okay? 
So he calls it, uh, before he called it hope, now he calls it the inheritance in light. He's still talking about the promise of God to all who believe and obey Jesus Christ. You know? What's the promise? What do they get? Forgiveness of sin, resurrection from the dead, eternal life in heaven and all of, of, all of what that in, entails. Right? So now he finishes the section by referring to Christians as saints in light because in the next section he's going to refer to Jesus as the king of the kingdom of, guess what? The king of the kingdom of light. And so that's a key word there. There's the bridge. He bridges to his next idea by finishing this section with the word light. So the reference to light sets up a visual bridge to the next verse where he's going to compare the kingdom of darkness, ignorance, false teaching, sin, you know, no faith, no love, no, you know, the kingdom of darkness, to the kingdom of the Son of God, which is the kingdom of light. So I'm going to stop there because that's a whole new section that starts and we're going to begin that next time. Uh, for now, um, I want to draw just a couple of lessons from the things that we've studied. So in our next lesson, we're going to be moving into the central theme of the letter. Christ, who is all sufficient in all relationships. But in this introductory phase, we can draw um, uh, important lessons for our own lives. And here's a couple. Okay? First of all, Jesus is Lord of all. I mean, we know that, but Paul is really you know, bearing down on this idea right here. Others may deny it or call this claim narrow-minded or intolerant, but they cannot deny that this is what the Bible teaches. I tell them, hey, your beef is not with me. You know, if I say you know, there's only one name under, which, uh, under heaven by which we can be saved, Christianity is the only portal that leads us to the next spiritual dimension. No other. There is no other portal. People say, wow, you're, you know, you're exclusivist and you're narrow-minded and you're a legalist and blah, blah, blah. And I said, hey, don't, don't get mad at me. Read your Bible. That's what the Bible teaches. Now you can re- you're free to reject that. You're free to say, nah, I don't believe that. I don't accept that. Fine. You deal with the consequences. But what you cannot do is say that the Bible doesn't actually teach that because that's what the Bible teaches. All right. So the Bible teaches that there's only one Lord, one Savior, one intermediary between God and humanity and that's Jesus Christ, Acts 4.12. He shares this role with no one. There are many men, usually, who have you know, lifted themselves up religiously in certain religious groups as the representative of God on earth. There is no such thing. Jesus Christ does not share his headship of the church with any other living being. Okay? No one. He is replaced by no, no one. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, he will always be the only Lord of all Christians. The only head. There's no co-head, co-regency in the church. Lesson number two. We have something to look forward to. We do. Paul calls it a hope. He calls it an inheritance of light. But it all points to the same beautiful future for those who have heard and obeyed the gospel. 
So whenever we become discouraged with this life, remember that we are exercising faith in this life, not for a reward in this life, but for a sure reward to come in the next life. Remember, even if it gets really, really good in this life or really, really bad in this life, the reward is not in this life. We need to keep that in mind. The reward is in the next life. And then thirdly, we need to ask for spiritual and not just material blessings. I mean, look at the things that Paul prayed for. He prayed for knowledge of God and God's will. He prayed for them to have the ability to be fruitful spiritually. He prayed that they would have spiritual power in Christian virtues, you know, patience, steadfastness. He prayed that they would have a joyful or thankful heart. Do you realize that this whole letter to the Colossians, right? we have no idea if the Colossians were rich people or poor people. We have no idea if they were tall people or short people, thin people, fat people. We didn't know if there were more men than women, more women than men, more children, if there were family. We know nothing about these individuals as people. You know? We only know them as you know, their spiritual lives. Paul could have prayed for healing because many were sick or some sort of you know, financial prosperity because many of them were poor, whatever. But he doesn't. He prays for them to have power in the spirit. And you know, these are the type of things that once you have them, they enrich your lives beyond anything that money could ever buy. OK, let me ask you this. What would you rather have, peace of mind or money? Tough choice, right? Because you know, money takes care of so many issues and so many stresses and strains. So you know, it would be a tough choice. Unfortunately, the only thing that money can't buy is peace of mind. And we know that because, let's face it, how many millionaires have we seen killing themselves or ruining themselves or drinking themselves to death? No peace of mind. So when we pray, it's okay to ask, Lord, my aching back, or Lord, I pray for you know, my little grandbaby who's got you know, ear infection. Of course. But let's not also forget to pray and ask for heavenly things as well. Not just earthly things, but heavenly things. Because we know that God definitely will answer those kinds of prayers. Okay, so, so far in Colossians, it's all been introductory stuff. He's just kind of setting it up. Next time we get together, we're going to go into the meat of the matter and begin discussing the preeminence of Christ. So that's our lesson for today. Thank you for your attention.